You're listening to Girls with Grafts, a burn community podcast created by Phoenix Society for Burn Survivors, a leading nonprofit dedicated to supporting the burn community. In this podcast, we'll talk with burn survivors, share resources to help with supporting and improving burn recovery, and discuss how to prevent burn injuries. Here are your hosts, burn survivors and Phoenix Society's marketing team, Amber Wilcox and Rachel Anderson. Hello, Anderson, and I'm one of the co-hosts, and I'm joined by Amber Wilcox as well. So excited. What a journey we've been on, and I am super excited still for our new guest today. I love the energy that this podcast has brought, and I want to thank everyone who has supported us on this journey. Uh, I do want to send over a special thank you to our season one podcast sponsor, Pritzker Hagman. Uh, but I'm going to turn it over to Rachel to introduce to you a very special guest we have today. Yes, yes. I'm very excited to introduce John O'Leary. Um, many of our community members already know him, so I'm so happy we got him on the podcast today. Um, so I'm going to give John his brief intro here. So in 1987, John O'Leary was a curious nine-year-old boy Playing with fire and gasoline, John created a massive explosion in his home and was burned on 100% of his body. He was given just 1% chance to live. His epic story of survival was first showcased in his parents' book, Overwhelming Odds, in 2006. And it was a book that first invited John to embrace his recovery and share it with the world. Today, John is the author of the instant number one best-selling book, On Fire, The Seven Choices to Ignite a Radically Inspired Life, and an inspirational speaker teaching more than 50,000 people around the world each year on how to live inspired. So John, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to dive into your journey with today. Um, so thank you for being here. Hi, Rachel, and what a joy. And hi, Miss Amber, good to see you too. Good to see you. So John, uh, I know we gave you that introduction, but for those of us that are maybe a little bit newer to your story, uh, did you wanna just give us a little bit of a brief overview of how your journey began? Yeah, I mean, gosh, we could start in a million different <laughs> places with that, that beautiful open-ended question with us being part of the Phoenix Society and with the work that you all do and with the experiences that brought you here probably the burn story is the place to begin. So uh, when I was nine years old, growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, I saw boys in my neighborhood playing with fire and gasoline. And when you're nine and you see older kids doing something like this, you, you, you just assume if they can do it and get away with it, that you can as well. So uh, as a curious, maybe the better word is mischievous nine-year-old little guy, my mom and dad were at work on a Saturday morning. I walked into their garage, bent over a can of gasoline, try to pour a little bit of gasoline on top of this piece of paper that I had just barely burning. And before the liquid even came out of the can, the fumes, you know, the invisible stuff, that's usually what gets us. The invisible stuff came out of the can, created this huge explosion, split the can in two, launched the child 20 feet against the far side of the garage. Everything around me was immediately on fire. I was covered in gasoline. I was on fire and, and girls with grass, like that, that's the beginning of the story. We can spend as much time in the garage or in recovery as you'd like, but that, that's the turning point, not only in my life, but also in the life of all my family members. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and the core of that story too, of, you know, we all think we can get away with things. We don't think it'll ever happen to us. We hear that all the time, but not just survivor stories, but just with so many elements of our life. So, you know, little nine-year-old boy got, got himself into a little trouble there. (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit. And and then quickly others got him out of it. So uh, what I, the only way I could spend a career doing what I do is if it was about other people. Mm. You know, like if, if I was the hero of the story, if I'm like, you know what? So here's what I did, ladies. I, uh, I I quickly put myself out and then I did a few skin grafts on myself and voila, I'm back. The, the cool thing about my story and when we're honest about all of our stories is how little we do for ourselves. We need to be mm. a part of it. We need to step forward. We need to be bold and faithful and courageous. And we need to lean into others. And, mm. and I learned at a young age how desperately I needed just about everybody else. Mm. So John, uh, you know, you were released, you know, you were released from the hospital, right? And I think one of the number one questions I get, or we get here from parents of survivors is, you know, how do we, I help my child return back to school or what is a normal childhood like? Um, And so your parents wrote a book, but let's talk a little bit about your experience, right? You're nine years old. You've just been burned a hundred percent of your body with a one percent chance of, of living um i'm sure you know that in and of itself is is something that i'm sure as a parent right they were <clears throat> were definitely probably unsure of how to help or where to go from there so what is your experience but then have you talked to your parents right about that well <laughs> i mean there, there's a lot there so there's a lot there <laughs> uh, we'll start with the burn degree one of the things i love about our community that I'm a member of, and you are members of, and in all likelihood, if someone's listening to this podcast, they might be a member of it as well, or maybe someone they love is a member of, is whether it's 1% or 100%, it doesn't really matter all that much. Like you're in, and I've always found that very heartening. So uh, I'm not better or worse than anybody else in this community, we're in this thing together. And I think that's really cool. I spent five and a half months in hospital that's a fairly long time. And some people would say that's forever. And others have spent years recovering. I spent mm-hmm. five and a half months. That's a long time though, for a nine-year-old little boy. I lost my fingers in, due to amputation. So I don't have fingers on the ends of my hands anymore. That was hard to recover from. For me, the greatest concern as a child was how would I ever be normal again? Mm-hmm. I'd never throw a baseball. That was for sure. I would probably never stand. Uh, I would probably never go back to school. I probably never have anybody hold my hand. I probably ne- never get a job. I probably never have a normal life. Those are all things that a nine-year-old and then eventual 10-year-old felt about himself. And luckily, and fortunately, I had amazing parents who felt very differently. Mm-hmm. One, one thing that is unusual, and maybe not unusual, but one thing that is true about my story is I had amazing leadership up and down it. Not, not everybody's lucky enough to have the family support that I had or the visionaries with me or the resources we had. We had all that stuff and, and faith guiding us forward. My, my mom and dad are titans and examples to me, both as a boy, but now as a man on how to lead well mm-hmm. through adversity. When they saw how I felt mm-hmm. and uh, when they saw the struggles that I faced, the question you asked a moment ago, Amber, is like, what did they do and what should other parents do? What my parents did is they treated me with incredible tough love. Mm. And I'm going to give you just two examples and we can unpack them if you'd like. 
but uh, I'll give you one for my mom and one for my dad. <laughs> so my mom, <laughs> I don't know who's meaner. So I'll give you both. Pope O'Leary's O'Leary's face. Who's the worst parent? <laughs> so, mom first. Ladies go first. So I come home from hospital. The house has been rebuilt. Hmm. My mother makes my favorite dinner, uh, but potatoes and chicken. And uh, I'm a weird kid. Broccoli and apple pie. And all this <laughs> stuff. So it's all in front of me. Five kids around the table. I'm number six, a couple dogs. Life is good. We made it. The only problem was I don't have fingers, which means mm -hmm. I can't do anything. I'm a victim to my circumstances. Just ask me, just ask me. And my sister, Amy, who will certainly be listening to this podcast and watching it live. She grabs <laughs> a fork. She starts scooping up some potatoes, brings it toward my mouth. And right as the fork's about to enter into my mouth, you know, the airplane's about to approach the hangar. <laughs> my mother says to my sister, Amy, drop the fork. <laughs> John's hungry. He'll feed himself. Mm. And I, I look at my mother with hands that are broken and busted and useless and an attitude that kind of matches. And I say, Mama, you know, what are you talking about? I'm never going to eat again. And my mother doesn't say it to me. She says it to my sister, Amy. Like I said, if John's hungry, he'll feed himself tonight. And I'll make a very long story far shorter, but the dinner went on to be two and a half hours. <laughs> By the end of the night, the dogs had been well fed. <laughs> <laughs> the plate had been flipped a couple times. My siblings had all left. The kitchen had been cleaned. My mother and I sat at the table by ourselves as the night moves toward morning, essentially. But by the very, very end of it, there's a little boy named John O'Leary in a wheelchair, wrapped in bandages, missing his fingers, holding a fork between two hands, eating, mm -hmm. angrily looking at his mom the entire time thinking, what an evil mom. Like, what, what, what a horrible <laughs> human being. Like, I can't, I can't believe she did this to me. Why would she ruin my homecoming party? Why would she make me learn how to eat again? So we could spend some time talking about that, but I told you you had to vote. So the, the first <laughs> one, my mom, what a horrible human being to make me figure out how to eat that first night. And the only person who may match her for meanness is my dad. <laughs> so about a year after homecoming, I'm getting ready to go back to school. It's been 18 months or so. So I'm getting ready to go back, learn how to walk again, learn how to hold a pen again, learn how to unzip a book bag again, learn how to board a bus again, all those things you got to do before you return. So I'm ready, but I don't want to go. I'm really scared. I'm afraid of how I'm going to be seen. I'll be judged what other kids are going to say, or, you know, how I'll eat by myself at lunch. All the very ordinary things most kids probably felt as they got ready to go to school. But in particular, when you go to school, still wrapped in bandages and where the bandages aren't, the scars are. So I had a whole lot of anxiety about going back to school. And the night before, I kept asking my dad, why me? Mm. It was my favorite question as a kid. And on my bad days, it's still a pretty common question. Why? <laughs> Why me, Dad? Why? So he's answering, and then I say it again, Dad. Why? Why me? Why, where was God? Why, why the fingers? Like all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it had been like an hour and a half of uh, what he would call a pity party. Uh, and we also used to say, you know, at a pity party, we've all had them, but it's only a table for one. There's only mm -hmm. room for one person at that party, and we, mm -hmm. we know what I'm talking about there. So I'm having a pity party. My dad, eventually, after trying to explain it and be with me and just love me for a while, finally had had enough. So mm -hmm. he stands, 
He walks to the end of my bedroom. He shuts the door. Uh, tragically, he shuts himself on the inside of the door. So now I'm stuck in this room with my dad. He walks mm. back over to me. He kneels in front of me. He puts his hands on my thighs, looks me square in the eyes and says, John, darn it. Why not you? Mm. This terrible thing has happened to you. And if you want, you can be a victim to it for the rest of your life. And nobody will ever blame you, not even once. You've been to the worst thing in life, John. 100% burn. And you went through all the things. And if you want to stay a victim to it, have at it. Mm. And then he took a deep pause. And this is 36 years ago. So it mm. didn't work. And then he said, or, or you can be a victor. You can choose to utilize it for good. You could choose to rise up and be redeemed through this experience. And then, John, any room we roll you into or eventually any room you walk into, people will look up at you in awe at not only all the things you've overcome in your life, but also all the things that they can overcome in theirs. And then he said, this is the part I remember best. He said to me, John, victim or victor, hmm. your choice. And then my awesome dad leans forward, kisses me on the forehead, stands up, walks out. <laughs> and ladies, girls with graphs and friends who are listening and watching, like that was 36 years ago. Mm. <laughs> and uh, a 10-year-old boy was moved by then. And uh, an older version of that boy in front of you today is continue. I'm still moved by it today. That idea of like this decision. The thing has happened. Mm. Now, what do you want to do in your life afterwards? You don't do that on day one. You asked about like, what's the advice for moms and dads and guardians? And you don't walk into the ER and say, hey, get over it, man. Victim or victor? Not at all. Mm -hmm. But there is a time. There's this inflection point. There's, there's an opportunity to choose the path hmm. where we get to love someone enough to put our arm around them and say, either way you choose, I'll walk with you. That's how much I love mm -hmm. you. But mm -hmm. just you, you have a voice here. You have a voice. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to love you either way. I'll be with you either way. But it's your choice. And it's going to influence not only the rest of your life, but those lucky enough to encounter you along the way. Mm -hmm. That's so. So as a survivor myself, I think I find myself asking that question as well. Right. And I remember I remember that moment that I asked that question to a counselor and and the response was the same. Right. Like I find myself asking why me and I'll never forget. He said, well, why not you? Like people go through stuff all the time. You're no, no special. Right. And, and so th there are hard things and we have to go through them. But I think I still, even after hearing that, right. And I wonder for you too, right. You were nine right. or, or 10 at that time. You probably asked it again. Did you not? And, <laughs> if, and if not like, right, like continuing to ask it, cause I know I ask it sometimes, but then bringing myself back. So how do you bring yourself back, John? Hmm. Well, I, mean, I just know, like, this is a daily process. We, we aren't perfected this side of eternity. So I, I'm asking why me every day. And then when I find mm -hmm. myself asking it, whether it's because of rain or financial struggle or my father's Parkinson's disease or candidly pain that some burn survivors deal with afterwards, uh, sometimes emotionally, frequently, mm -hmm. sometimes spiritually, frequently, physically. So some of our survivor community, like we're in pain a lot. Me too. Mm -hmm. So a normal question should be, why me? Mm. And so I'm not trying to come in here and say, dude, it is always good. 
just like my life is so easy. Not at all. It's actually uh, not always good and not always easy and frequently not either of those things. But when I ask my, when I find myself dripping toward the mirror, looking down and saying, oh, why me? What I do is I try to pivot it as quickly as possible. And kind of like your advisor, your counselor said, why not you? I try to just turn the tone with which I ask it from being a victim to a victor. Like, why me? Like, why am I still alive? Think about that. Darn it, dude. 100% burn. Not something most people would survive. I, I don't know how it happened. I think it's God's grace and a great physician and a phenomenal team and great parents. Like, why me? That's a really a lot of luck that built up right there. Today, I'm, I'm married, have four children, have parents who still love me, have a career that I love, have the ability to see and hear and move freely and travel and like all these awesome things. Why me? Why me? So when I find myself and it's frequent asking the question, why me? I try to catch myself and then pivot it to being from a negative into a positive. Yeah, no, I mean, like you said, even if you're not a survivor of listening or if you're a loved one or, or a healthcare professional, it doesn't really matter. We can all ask ourselves, why, why me in so many different areas of our life? So, you know, regardless of who's listening, you, I think everyone can take that sentiment with them of, you know, why me, but why not you? And what, why did I get, you know, I try to look at my burns as a blessing. So why did I get this blessing and what am I supposed to now do with that? And how can I help others? Um, so I think, you know, like I said, regardless of who's listening, I think everyone can, can appreciate that. And it, one of the best things about being burned, it's a weird to frame it like that, but I think it is true is everybody's pretty broken. Everybody's still a struggle. Everybody had a difficulty in their family and difficult in a first relationship and a marriage that may have fallen apart or gone sideways or a diagnosis they didn't want all these things. And none of it is seen, none of it. You put enough makeup on it and all that stuff goes away and smile big enough and no one knows the pain. Then a burn survivor walks in with that skin graft mm. and that's R and people might ask about it. And then it frequently, if you're open about it and honest about it, they'll say, well, listen, I've never been burned, but can I tell you something? Mm. And that's when they will tell you about a bipolar diagnosis or a suicide in the family or a bankruptcy or a million other things that seem completely unrelated to burns. And in some regard, they are completely unrelated. And yet what's most personal is most universal. Like the thing that is most intimate about your life that you hope no one else finds out about is also the thing when someone else finds out about it, they're like, me too. Mm -hmm. yeah, me too. And so what, what I actually love about being a survivor and having scars from my neck to my toes, quite literally, is it allows people to come up to me and share things with me they may not tell their spouse. Mm -hmm. Like that's so, for me, it's so awesome. What, what a gift. I, I think, mm. Rich, you said it. The, it's a blessing. I agree. It's, it is a blessing once you embrace it. Yeah, because you're wearing your trauma on the outside, right? Like, and then un, uh, unfortunately, there is a lot of trauma that happens that, you know, you, like you said, you may not see. So I think that's a beautiful way to look at it is that, you know, you're wearing a badge of honor to show others that, like, I survived and, and I'm a survivor too. So I, mm. I love that. I love that that sentiment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So John, I know, so I'm also a childhood burn survivor. I'm kind of going back here a little bit and more of your journey. And um, so I was burned when I was three. So I don't remember, you know, a time before I was burned really at all. Um, so for you, it's a little different because when you're nine, you know, you are in school already, you already have your friends. So 
I know you talked about kind of going back to school, but what are some other challenges you faced as a childhood burn survivor growing up? Gosh, I mean, I hope I hope whoever uh, is still listening, whoever I've not yet rocked to sleep, you may want to get a cup of coffee because this be <laughs> long. Whatever's in your mug right now, we are not here to judge you. Okay, we're here to love you. So it's like a big old swig. You'll probably need it. For me, the physical stuff was always easier to get over than the, than the, the emotional. And so, you know, when you burn third degree on 87% of your body, there's a lot of physical damage that's going to follow you during that time of recovery and then into life afterwards. Mm. The skin grafts and the amputations and the time in hospital, like physical therapy, my gosh, occupational therapy, all that stuff was really difficult, but endurable. Mm. The stuff for me that was always hardest as a child was more of the emotional scars. Um, not being invited to spend the night at, at a Boy Scout event because everybody else was going to uh, go for a hike in the morning. And I wasn't yet able to, like being mm. excluded, not being able to play baseball again once I got out and, and never being able to, not being able to do all the things that is, you know, I'm a little Midwest kid. I consider myself an athlete growing up. All that was taken away from me. And so as a little boy, that was really hard to wrestle with. Hmm. And then advancing forward from, you know, you mentioned three, I was nine, but into puberty, trying to figure out at an age where everybody's awkward. Hmm. And I was really awkward at that age. And then trying to figure out intimacy and connection. And if you don't love yourself fully, how could you possibly hope for someone else to love you as you are mm. in this broken self? It's something most people deal with, but in particular, those who wear their scars on the outside, they certainly deal with that, or at least can. Mm. So all of those and a litany of other challenges were part of my childhood. And again, I remind you of a few things I, I did have going for me. Number one and two were mom and dad, five mm. siblings who supported me and had my back, a, a pretty deep network of friends who... Um, I was recently telling a friend that when I got married, so so I did get married. That I was going to ask you about that, John. So <laughs> you got married. We'll come back to that in a moment. But six of the guys who were in tuxedos that day went to grade school with me. Like, why D did you mm. not make any friends in high school or college or at, like why, why? And I had to think about that. And it's it, it's because that childhood trauma changed us all. And trauma either repulses you and pushes you away from that thing or those that you endured it with, or it draws you together. And for John and that entire little network of kids growing up in St. Louis, it, it was a galvanizing thing. And it, you, it remains something that, that unites us. It remains something that is because of it, we are far better adults because we went through this as nine-year-olds together. So I, I went through a lot of hardship, no doubt, but uh, looking back on it, it ended up being a gift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I mean, I just remember going to grade because that was the, my elementary school friends. They all knew about my burns. Like we've had talks about it, but kind of like how you were saying, like you have that, you go through something together and like while, yes, I was in elementary school during my burn, all my friends knew about it. They knew the story. They've heard it multiple times. But then when I entered middle school, I was terrified to go. I had the worst first day, but it was mostly because I put that on myself. I went into the day thinking I was going to have a bad day. Yes. So, of course, I had a bad day. Um, so I think it's so much about, you know, that mindset going into it. And 
yeah, family and finding that support system is so, so important, whether it's, it's your friends, mom or dad or whoever it is, that support system. The attitude going into it is critical. So mm -hmm. many listeners and viewers will be survivors and many are just interested in the topic. Uh, another example my mother taught me, so you can, you can, please do vote below mom or dad who's meaner. So here we go. <laughs> mom set the chance to win the prize. We, we went to church. I, I was probably about 11 or so, maybe even 12, like you know, fifth, sixth grade, getting older. And there's a part in our church service where you extend your hand to shake hands with people around you to sign up. Mm -hmm. So we're all shaking hands. In our family, we always started with family. And, you know, you try like punch them in the kidney or whatever, make them laugh. So it's kind of playful. Then you turn to people, usually, you know, but not always. So I shake hands with people in front of me. And they, of course, mm -hmm. know that, you know, that John O'Leary was known in that little church community. And I remember I turned around to the guy behind me. He had a beard. He was a taller guy, probably six, two or six, three. And uh, he extended his right hand. So, of course, 11, 12 year old John extended his right hand. The man looked down, saw my hand, pulled back his, crossed mm. his arms and looked away. It's a long time ago. And I remember this and I seldom share it because it's somewhat irrelevant usually mm. in my life. But uh, I remember it like just ruined me. And I, mm. I, as a man's man, 11 years old, I don't tell anybody that, but I just was changed. So uh, on the way home from church, my mom could just tell mm. there's something about moms. So this, this mom of mine, she could just tell. So finally she got it out of me what happened. And, uh, afterwards we got out of the car and everybody else goes inside and she's like listen john <laughs> let anybody else define who you are or mm -hmm. or try to try to assert their power over you you are a miracle you belong you're precious just as you are next mm -hmm. time someone sticks out their right hand don't just try to hope they grab it with their one hand i want you to reach out with both of your hands grab on <laughs> pull them close and hug them <laughs> The folks who might have met me at, at a burn Congress or some speaking conference or somewhere along the way in an airport, one of the things that is unique and maybe weird about John O'Leary is when you meet him, mm -hmm. even if it's for the first time, the dude like oh, pulls it in, <laughs> be damned, man. Like, I'm going to pull you in and hug you. Why? Uh, and I think the why of that is my mother taught me years ago that I am worthy. And so is the person that I'm about to meet. Like, it's not just either or. It's not like, John, you're better than they are. Show them. Mm -hmm. Not at all. We're both worthy. We both belong. Act like it. So although he turned his literally back to me, mm -hmm. no one's been able to since. So the, mm -hmm. the way you step into a classroom or a school bus or a church, synagogue service, or the first day of work or middle school will influence that day. And I think mm. we give way too much power to the day, to po politicians, to headlines, to someone's opinion of our hands or scars mm. or car or whatever the thing it is, rather than just knowing that we're enough and it's good and we're going to act like it. Mm. That's beautiful. I know I hear, right? So I attend Phoenix Society's virtual support, right? And, and that's something that I think we talk or it comes up a lot, right? As somebody who has scars and I think with COVID and everything that kind of happened over the last couple of years, we're used to that virtual environment, but then we go to interact with someone face to face and the reaction's not the same, right? Whether it's because your burns are right below the waist or because of just 
it's my first time interacting with someone, right? And so right. Uh, I think it's important to hear that message, but also know that sometimes it can be tough as a survivor meeting someone and, and knowing that may not, that or that probably I would say is not the last time you've had some kind of strange thing happen as it pertains to your burns, right? <laughs> probably not. <laughs> it's material. You know, I'm always looking for material to write on. So uh, it's just more material to write on. <laughs> uh, but I would say, I, I guess, I'm sure you get a lot of questions, right? And things today, even still when you're in the grocery store or whatnot. Um, and we talk a lot about rehearsing your response, but John, how would you say, you know, you've perfected that or maybe not over the years of how you respond to those, those comments or things, you know, your mom taught you really well, um, and, and kudos to her for that. But I think, um, how has that evolved right since that day? Yeah, it, it depends a lot on the situation and, and, and who is the one asking the question or, or staring at me. I'll begin with kids. So frequently what happens when kids see a person who is somehow different than they are physically, whether that's skin tone or clothing or amputations or scars, whatever the thing is, the beautiful thing about kids is they will let you know that you're different than what they're used to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the painful thing about adults is they will then yank their child's hand and mm. tell them, don't stare, don't ask, don't look, uh, ignore, ignore. Mm. And so when I see that happen, I always kneel down in front of the child and I'm like, oh, do, do you have a question for me? And, you know, just meet them where they are, love them as they are, come eye level with them. And what I found is a couple of things. One is the more comfortable you are, survivors mm -hmm. and listeners, the more comfortable they become almost immediately. So that's cool. And the second thing is once it's discussed, it's gone. So almost always this like scarlet letter we hide. <laughs> I mm. hope no one knows I'm missing my fingers. If I keep my hands in my pockets, maybe they won't. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. But I've always found if you just walk in boldly, uh, as soon as people recognize you're comfortable, they become com comfortable too. Mm. So with, with children, when they're staring or asking questions, I just love to answer them. And honestly, mm. but playfully, like a child, try to meet mm. them as they are, where they are. With adults, it depends a little bit on why they're asking Sometimes they're asking from a, a high horse or a position of power. And uh, I think that's a little bit less genuine than when people are just curious. Like, man, hey, brother, what, what happened, man? You serve? I'm like, no, I, I wish I could have served. I, I got burned at age nine. And it's almost beautiful to be able to authentically share your story succinctly. And then people will share either the story of a neighbor who got burned, a family member who was in an automobile accident, something that happened in their family. I've always found that this thing that I went through that I tried for decades to hide from is now the thing that builds the bridge to people in, in unbelievably compassionate ways. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I embrace the opportunities of answering the questions in the stairs. We would stare too. If someone yeah. walked in missing fingers or looking radically different or with a limp, if you don't stare, it's not because like, oh, I, John, I don't see it, man. I'm too bull. We do see it. Mm -hmm. It'd be great to find a man. Tell me what happened there. What happened there? I think being vulnerable is, you know, we've talked to a couple of survivors now on our podcast and uh, that theme of vulnerability keeps coming up, right? Of being able to just show up and, and tell your story. Right. And so that can be, that can take a lot of courage, especially as a new survivor. Um, I think being able to be like, this is what happened. Right. And, and come out right. and say it. And I, I think 
getting started well at nine right i've asked this of, of parents who weren't survivors before too and and just say like what was that like for you right how did you how did you start to learn here's how to tell my story and mm -hmm. and back then you may not have had all of the tools you had your parents right to help you but uh how did you start to perfect that <laughs> or not perfect it <laughs> yeah, i mean awkwardly you heard my little laugh right there so it's still being perfected and again i said this earlier but i don't think we're perfected this side of eternity i think we're always a work in progress mm -hmm. and i'm okay with that i'm okay dangling prepositions and starting off answers wrong and everything else i think authenticity wins the day in a marketplace mm -hmm. where you seldom see authenticity and humility mm -hmm. so um I, I try to lead with that, but it, it wasn't natural and it wasn't quick. At age 27 or 28, I got a call. I was working construction at the time and uh, I flipped the phone open. So that's going to date me a little bit, but I flipped. <laughs> <laughs> I answer it. And on the other end is a little girl and she says, Mr. O'Leary. So I said, oh, let me get you my dad's number. And she goes, no, 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 Mr. O'Leary, don't hang up. Mr. O'Leary, your dad gave me your number. Mr. O'Leary, would you share your story for my school? Mm. And at age 27 or 28, not only had I not perfected the answer, I, I didn't know the answer. I don't even know if I knew the question. Mm. I had never told anybody how I got burned. Nobody. So it wasn't something we talked much about as a family. It's not something I talked a lot about with my friends or coworkers. I just kind of tucked my hand in my pocket, moved on in the end of the day, hoping that others would not notice trying to be ordinary like everybody else. And so I did that very well for a long time, 28 years. And then on that day, this little girl says, would you speak? And I, for whatever crazy reason, said yes. So, mm -hmm. so a couple of weeks later, I found myself taking my truck out to the school in St. Louis County. Uh, I practiced probably 40 hours to give this talk. It was a nine minute talk. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't a school. It was three third grade Girl Scouts. So that's the coming out party, man. Three third grade. <laughs> you pay me a box of Samoas for my effort. I get nothing in return. <laughs> fail utterly. Dangle propositions. Never look up for my course notes. Look down the entire time. Walk out of that room. And that's it. Except that as I'm walking out, one of the dads in the room says, man, that, that was awesome. Would you share at my Rotary Club? Mm. I'm like, oh, okay. So I did. And we did that three times in year one and then eight in year two. And I think 36 year three wow. in the 15 years that have followed, I've spoken 2000 times in front of a couple mm. million people live, uh, tens of millions, apparently virtually when you add them all up because of the ability to say yes. Yeah, you know, like that, that first yes is a big one. The yes wasn't just to the Girl Scout. It's yes, to the reflection in the mirror. Yes, to like recognizing that the story has value, mm. that it can be not only about you and your brokenness, but ultimately about someone else and reminding them that there remains possibility in, in their lives. So I, I've been extremely fortunate. And, and it's amazing if you track it all the way back. It's, it's a little girl, third grader, St. Louis County, calling me when I'm working construction would you speak to my little brownie group? Yeah. Mm. Let's go. <laughs> that's awesome. That's that's so such a fun way, you know, when you think about it, that this girl called you and that is how, <laughs> you know, you started sharing your story. So yeah, I would love to know more about like, how did you get into motivational speaking? How did you 
find your way to this path to be and to be sitting here today, you know, an author, a best-selling author, a speaker. Um, how did you get here? Right. I mean, clearly God's grace. <laughs> That's not the only thing, right? I mean, you set goals, right? <laughs> we'll, we'll unpack that too. But the, the reality is when you look back at all of our lives, you can't, our pastor says God draws straight using crooked lines. And whether you have a faith life or not, listeners and viewers and friends, like I'm just telling you, as I look back on my life, there's no way I get to this point without the hand of God. So I see that as being instrumental Absolutely. in the journey forward for me. Mm. I look at my parents and what they did and the foundation they were and my friends and family and like all that stuff. So specifically the answer to your question, it was a Girl Scout and it started there and it was a powerful yes. When mm. a man said, would you speak to my Rotary Club? Yeah, I'll go and I'll try to get better. And it was this diligence of getting better, not for ego's sake or income's mm -hmm. sake, but for the sake of using a story for something bigger than myself. Frequently, mm -hmm. people who are survivors will say, John, I've got a story and I think I want to become a speaker. Mm -hmm. And when I ask a few clarifying questions, it usually is like, you know, I, I love the way my voice sounds. It's like, just listen, isn't it? Like, so the, it's all about them. And for us, looking back on it, it really was all about, man, how do we use the story for others? How do we just tell a story of like community and impact mm. and goals and showing up and purpose and passion and fighting through the hard? Mm. So uh, th that's what we were focused on throughout the entire thing. And yeah, three Girl Scouts, then about 30 Rotarians, then about 60 mm. kept going on from there. After every single speech, I would journal in my car before I left what went well, what went poorly. Mm. Okay, we'll do better. Then I would say something kind of funny randomly, like, uh, I don't know. I won't even give you a joke right now, but I would say something kind of funny and everybody would laugh and I'd be like, whoa. It's so I would write that down. <laughs> and even 16, 17 years later, some of those jokes that seem happenstance, they're not, they're planned. Mm. Just we want to move hearts and you can't mm. move them energetically with passion movement, like action wise, unless you keep them awake and alert the entire time. So we would pay attention for the emotional side, for the humorous side, for the stuff that got too rough. Get rid of that. If it's too rough, get rid of it. Don't leave the pictures of the skin grafts up very long. That's inappropriate. It doesn't work. But leave the picture of your brother who saved your life up for a little bit longer or your parent mm. or that doctor or the nurse that came back day after day. So we just kept refining the story. Then we would set as we grew from John to a, to a colleague professionally and then another and then another. We would meet quarterly and have five-year vision sessions. What are we going to mm. be doing in five years? And then in 18 months to get there. Mm. And then in six months. And what are we going to do? What are we doing over the next couple of weeks? So we just kept backing into these big, crazy, bold, grandiose five-year visions of what is possible. And I think we think we can get a lot more done in a day. Now we'll do the, <laughs> we'll, go to the we'll go to the grocery store and Target and we'll hit up. A home. You can't get it all done. We think too highly about what we can do in one day, but we think way too small for five years. So we, we had an exercise just going back now 15 years, like, whoa, what can we do? And we thought mm -hmm. big and we, we've lived into it. We've tra traveled the world. We've got a couple of best-selling books. We've got a top rated podcast. None of this is arrogance. This is again, what happens when people come together for something bigger than themselves and then take mm -hmm. the next right step forward they learn the mistakes along the way and they keep washing, repeating and, and doing better for a cause bigger than themselves. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, 
even just thinking about our open mic. So we have a virtual open mic on our website. And, you know, even for me too, as a survivor, when you first start telling your story, you do tend to kind of focus on that, the actual accident or the injury or that physical component. But then over time, your story evolves, it changes. And then you realize, you know, yes, the injury is part of my story, but there's so much more there than just that mm. one moment in time. Right. And yeah, we see and just seen an open mic, you know, we'll get some repeat submissions. And it is, it's incredible to see even six months difference, how people can share their story differently. And they find that bigger purpose there. I, and yeah. I, I think it's cool you do that because like I'm in a Christian leadership group and we have frequently will give opportunities for people to share their stories open mic time. Mm. And they are always worried about how can they share it to impress the other folks listening. Mm. And I, my, my job as a guy who does do some speaking on the, on the side is to remind them it's not at all about them yet. It will be mm -hmm. eventually. You share your story. You grab the open mic, though, ultimately to embrace the gift of your story. And then regardless of who tunes in, next time you walk into a store and someone stares, next time you walk into a hospital and you're not prepared what to say to that parent who's grieving, because you know your story so intimately and so well and so authentically, you can meet others where they are with theirs. That's mm. the power of the open mic, not how great you can sound. That's part of it. Good. I hope it gets better and better. But it's really so that you can show up real in a marketplace that is not used to that kind of appearance. Mm. I... I think it's hard, right? Because I think we do have survivors out there that are so new. And I think in the beginning, I didn't want to share my story, right? When I had first really been burned and not sure of what to say or how to say it. And so I think that's a powerful message, John, of, of being able to know that it doesn't have to be perfect, right? And it doesn't have to be impressive. And yeah, we're all burned of different degrees, right? Um, but I think having that faith, right. Um, of knowing that, okay, this is my story and I'm going to just tell it the way I know it right now. And it might change, but that's okay. Yes. Um, and it doesn't, that's a hard to place to be. A, a lot of survivors. I have a friend whose son passed away by suicide. And at our first lunch afterwards, about a month in, he was asking me questions about how do I become a speaker around this? And I, I, um, won't share his name, but I said, friend, uh, and I walked him through how long it took me to embrace my own struggle, almost 20 years before being able to stand in front of a group of three Girl Scouts. <laughs> so like, I think sometimes we race healing mm. and there's some power in just struggling and enduring and leaning into others and getting resources and doing a couple open mics, but doing it maybe just to kind of practice, just practice mm. before you really grab a microphone and uh, start lifting your voice high to the edges of the world. So I, I, I'm big into thinking, first we race healing and it, there, there might be benefits sometimes in awkwardly pulling ourselves along the journey until we look back and recognize how we healed well. Hmm. And everybody heals differently. So I think knowing like what happened with you and your path may not be how I right want to move forward or how Rachel moves forward. Yeah. And so I think, knowing that we each have, and right, we have our own journeys in, in our emotional healing and our faith, right? <laughs> like for, for me, right. It might, it might've started with why me, but then eventually moving to knowing like there was a higher power, right. That was able to, to heal me and know that I, there was a purpose for behind it. But I think that's a struggle that we deal with in many different ways on many different journeys. And there's no, I think survivors ask a lot, right? Like 
how is it going to happen? And we don't always have the answer. Yes. Uh, we often never have the answer. So I think that's mm -hmm. important to, to share. And I'm sure even now, John, your journey is far from over, right? Like there's still more that you're learning every day, I'm sure. Am I wrong on assuming that? <laughs> it is right. So no, you're, you're, you're spot on. Mm -hmm. Well, and another thing too is, you know, especially for those listening, you know, your story can change every day. Like if one day you don't feel like sharing too many details with someone, you don't have to. And then other days, maybe you do want to dive into more of your story. I mean, I know sometimes I'll be at the grocery store and someone will ask me about my injury. And sometimes I just don't feel like talking about it, like nothing against them, but I am here to get my groceries and I want to go home. So my, my story is shortened. And then other times I'm okay with sharing, you know, I'll go into detail. You have an hour, I can fill that hour up with my story. So I just want to make sure, you know, even for the listeners too, you don't have to, what you share is up to you and how much you share is up to you. And John, I'm sure you know that too, from, you know, even speaking in front of people. I mean, I'm sure sometimes when you're in front of a crowd, you do go more into your survivor story. And then maybe sometimes you just try to connect with the audience more and focus more on them and less yes. on you. That's so, so apt. And in particular afterwards, I think from the front of a room, you can craft the message the way you want to craft it. You mm -hmm. get to determine it. It's afterwards where um, you have to really be intentional on what do you, what do you want to say here? What do you want to offer? What do you want to hear? What do you want to give and what do you want to receive? And so being thoughtful on all of that as seasons change in our lives is, is super important because it's a, it's a lifelong healing. It's mm -hmm. not, it's not the time in hospital. Now you're better it's a lifelong and you're always going to have those scars, some on the inside, some on the outside, but those scars walk with you for the remainder of your days. And I think your scars evolve over time, right, John, I don't know about you, but like still not realizing how long my healing journey might be. Right. So years yeah. out, you're still having surgeries. Um, I, I'm not sure how long ago your last surgery for your burn, but I'm sure you have surgeries ongoing, right. For your scars and how those heal. So the scars that were, many years ago may not be the scars that they are today. That's yes. And the cool thing is when you meet a person who's been recently burned and they're looking down at their skin, um, struggling mm. to be able to say, you know what, I got, you got to know this about that scar you're staring at. It's going to keep getting better and better. And I believe I, I, that's not just an optimist half full glass of lemonade in front of me right now. Truly as scars heal, they beautify. They become more a part of you. They lighten in color. They become uh, they become you, and I think that's a really cool thing. I I was always afraid of how like my kids would see my scars, and a, a story I sometimes share is I was worried about how they would view my hands. Mm. And I was on a, a call one time for work on a conference call, eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich at home. Okay, <laughs> so don't jump. Okay, O'Leary's peanut butter jelly is good. <laughs> it is good. So my, I had two children at the time, Jack and Patrick. Jack is maybe two. Patrick's a newborn baby. And I look down as I'm eating my sandwich, balancing it on my knuckles. Like, like okay, so the, the sandwich is being balanced, conference call. And I look down and my little boy, Jack, is looking up at his dad, balancing his sandwich on his knuckles. <laughs> I want to be like that. I want to be like that. And so... The people we all ought to care the most about in life are going to accept the scars for you 
Like yeah. they're not gonna they're not gonna see you as less than. It's just you. And so my, my wife has been able to see that. My children most certainly have, and my friends who are my friends don't see scars, they see John. Yeah. Let's talk yeah. about your wife for a moment, if it's okay. Uh, <laughs> and no. <laughs> knowing, uh, so she knew you after you were burned, right? And my burn injury, John, um, I was married and then I was burned. So I think um, there's there's different things that happen, right? During that phase. And I'm sure dating is complex when you've been burned. And I, I have, unfortunately, haven't had that experience, but or, or fortunately, but uh, tell me a little bit about what that was like meeting your wife or, you know, how, how has she, you know, talked to, to you about your scars? Yeah. So I, I'm seldom this like spiritual in, in conversations, but really God's grace, man. Mm-hmm. So she's an occupational therapist by training. She's an OT. I met her when she was a freshman. I was a junior in college. I'm finance. She was OT. She's beautiful. I mean, for the folks watching right now, there's like pictures of my family behind me and, and the prettiest person up there is my wife. <laughs> and the four next prettiest people are her kids, my children, who look just like their mom. <laughs> she's got a great heart, great, great everything about her. It We were friends for three years. And I'd asked her out several times. It just, you know, she would always say, John, you know, we're friends. You're like a brother to me. Uh, so... <laughs> couple things changed. Number one is I stopped pursuing Beth for my own purpose. I think frequently in life, we, we do things, whether it's at work or in relationships with intimacy, social media, whatever, to get something out of it. We could spend a lot of time talking about that, but much of what we do in life is for us, especially when you're a young 20 something looking for a girlfriend. What you're really looking for is someone to cover up your, bl- your, your blind spots, make you whole, fix me. And uh, at about 22, I stopped. I just like accepted life and in particular her and all things for like what it was and just embraced the gift of it. And in, in being able to embrace her for her and not trying to pursue anything out of it, I think it turned the way she saw me from being a typical pursuer to just being this guy who was fun and cool and she could hang with and eventually fall in love with. And so eventually, long story short, she fell in love with me. She asked me out. We're at dinner and she says, John, every time I'm with you, I get butterflies in my stomach. Not sure why they are there. Wish they would fly away, but will you date me? So I said, uh, you're like a sister. That's gross. (laughs) I did not say that. I I high fived and said, you know, it's about time, man. So we dated for three years. Uh, on November 22nd, this year, we celebrate so today our 19th anniversary. So uh it's it's worked out well for us. So that's the, beautiful. But I mentioned Grace in that mm. when we started dating, because there's there's newness there no matter what, but there's certainly new, new, newness there when you're dating someone who has scars on their body. Beth uh, and I were dating for three months, but it was a gradual uh, incline of dating. And then she was positioned as a senior to her first tour, whatever they call it, rounding. She had to move to Springfield, Illinois, about two hours away. And they randomly placed her at one hospital. And then they randomly placed her in one unit. The one unit in this one hospital in Springfield, Illinois, where they placed my future wife was the burn center. Mm. So this girl who's still trying to figure out her feelings on all this stuff. 
is now doing therapy with children, young people, mm. adults who've been burned, seeing firsthand the agony. And it is agony that a burn survivor is going through in particular in the early days. Uh, and it is not only changing her heart for the work she's about to do for the rest of her life, but also for the one she's about to say, I do to, for the rest mm. of her life. So I've just been fortunate again and again and again in life to, uh, to stumble my way forward with amazing people and, and no one more amazing than my wife, Beth. Mm, that's amazing. And for 19 years, how are you celebrating? Do you have a, any plans? <laughs> so we, we go to, our, I won't even name it because I don't want people to, to uh, bottles <laughs> of wine or uh, you know, <laughs> whatever it might be to the restaurant. But the place where she asked me out, it's a little Italian place in St. Louis. Uh, I'm going to be taking her there tonight to celebrate her asking me out, me asking her out and us on the altar saying I do. And, you know, marriage is hard. Okay. Here comes the counseling session. So everybody get comfy. Marriage is hard. It's a pain. Raising kids is hard. Staying married is hard. Staying in love, not just together, but like in love. We're pretty darn intentional on purposefully day after day saying I do. Not mm -hmm. like a one-time commitment made 19 years ago at four o'clock on this day at a church downtown. But it's saying those words when when I leave the toilet seat up <laughs> that we do like, Oh, that annoys me so bad about it. Fine. Okay. Things about you too. And then even in the middle of that, those things like still saying, and I still do, I, I'm still mm -hmm. wild about you. And the more you choose to be committed and wild and in love with the person in front of you, the more that relationship just takes on new life mm -hmm. in ways that are far better than last year, the year before the year before mm -hmm. that. So our marriage is, is as awkward and as imperfect as it's ever been. But I think it's better than it's ever been. That's that's amazing. And sound I love Italian food, so that sounds right up my alley as a way to celebrate. <laughs> Don't tell anyone because we may crash. That's well, what's gonna on. happen. <laughs> Cafe Napoli. Cafe Napoli. Uh, we'll be partying there tonight. So that's that's where we will be celebrating. I think I wrote about it in in our book. So uh <laughs> That's where she asked me out. It's where I eventually knelt down on the sidewalk right, right outside after we finished a meal and it's where we'll be partying tonight. That's amazing. Well, have a glass of wine or a sweet treat for, uh, <laughs> for us tonight celebrating what a beautiful 19 years. That's amazing. Thank you. We'll do both. Yeah, go ahead, Rachel. Well, I was just going to say, you mentioned this, and I know I mentioned this in your, your bio as well, but you are the author of two books, maybe more, but I, I know I have two um, of your books. So I just wanted you to kind of talk a little bit more about them quickly before we wrap up, um, where people can find them. I, and I know you have a podcast too, so we'd love to hear all, all, of the, all of the things you're up to right now that our community can keep up with you. And about the awesome. podcast, I want to know, I, I saw one of your recent episodes. Um, so what is the podcast about and kind of what? Yeah. So what our whole brand, the whole brand is Live Inspired. Live Inspired. So the podcast is called Live Inspired with John O'Leary. And anywhere you download podcasts, you can find us there. So Live Inspired with John O'Leary. And what it's about it, I interview people that I look up to. So where you and I are having this conversation right now, the wall behind me is my family. That's why I go to work every day. And it's why I race home at the end of it. The wall behind this camera, though, like this is my podcast wall. So it's astronauts and presidents and artists and authors and survivors and fighters and overcomers and inmates and just amazing human beings throughout history 
that have made their mark by embracing their own imperfections and then doing something in life, even when they were afraid to do it. So I'm staring at a cute blonde right now. Brene Brown is staring right back at me. Mm. Talks a lot about the power of vulnerability. Mm. Uh, I had her on. There's a fellow just to her right. Like, who knew they were going to be on the wall next to each other? His name was Andre Norman. Andre Norman was put away for 26 years for attempted murder and first degree battery. Then once he went into the Massachusetts penitentiary system was so abusive and violent, they sent him to nine different prisons. No one could mm. get a handle on him until a rabbi and then a counselor and then a psychologist and then two little Catholic nuns got a hold of him and just loved him out of it. There's a picture of him right below the one I have on the wall where he's got his two big, beautiful arms around these two cute, white-haired nuns. These <laughs> are the folks who believe in him before he believed in himself. So I just interview folks. There's a picture up there of Dog the Bounty Hunter. We interviewed Dog. <laughs> I love Dog. <laughs> I love him more when you hear his story. Because mm. he's been through so much. And he comes across as this macho, tough, long-haired, blonde guy, always getting the... Yeah, but that comes from a place of brokenness. And he's still working through that redemption. Beautiful story. So that Live Inspired with John O'Leary. We are at 512 episodes. And it's cool. I, I just I have the honor of putting on that podcast. Hmm. About 512. Wow. Our five episodes, Rachel. <laughs> and John's at 512 here. <laughs> I, I think I started a little before you. So we started, we started <laughs> 2017 or so. So we've been doing this oh, wow. for a while. And then uh, the books. You can learn more on our website at johnolearyinspires.com. So uh, anywhere that you uh, Google search or whatever else you do, go to johnolearyinspires.com. And the first book is called On Fire. Mm -hmm. And I, I wrote it to celebrate people who showed up for me when there was no chance. The, mm -hmm. the picture that the, the publishing company provided when they first did the, the book art was a picture of O'Leary wearing a suit, <laughs> you know, arms crossed, looking very <laughs> macho and stoic and, and bright, like looking at the reader, like people look at me. And if mm -hmm. you read this one day, you might become great too. Mm -hmm. So I wrote back and I'm like, hey guys, read the book before you do the cover art next time. And so now <laughs> there's a, if you ever check out on fire, it's a picture of letters that are like made to look like they're on fire. Literally they're orange and red and pink and the color of fire, but they're made with, it's called foil wrap. And that way, when a reader looks at it, they actually see themselves in it. So mm -hmm. they're not seeing how great John is because he's not really. They see how great they are and they see how mm -hmm. great their life can be going forward. So I, I love the cover of On Fire. It's ultimately a story of the miracles possible in our lives collectively. Mm -hmm. The second book is called In All. In All came out in 2020. And I, I wrote it because I just saw this need for people to return to joy. You see on this on the playgrounds of schools, like just little kids laughing and playing and skipping. And then you see these teachers and room parents watching just bored and miserable by life. Mm. Something happened between second grade. And when I watched those second graders with anger and I wanted to know what happened, why did we lose it and how to re return to it? So I, I wrote a book called in awe about mm. what they have, why we lost it and how to get back into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I remember I read that right after you spoke at ABA in 2020. It was like, we were supposed to go to Orlando and it got canceled, like, I think like the day I was supposed to leave and you um, did a virtual event there and I got your book from it. And I remember reading it when we were stuck at home inside, not doing much. <laughs> And still you could have joy and still you can yes, laugh. That's right. And there's, 
I'm, I'm a profound optimist, not because life is going to be easier, but because we've been proven throughout history again and again and again, that the human heart is stronger than the challenges we face. Mm-hmm. So I, I, yeah, there are profound challenges individually and collectively. And we've proven repeatedly, read history, that our better days are in front of us. So I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm showing up on this podcast with challenges, but with great optimism for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. With that, John, I have one final question for you. Uh, we have a lot of new survivors, right, that join and listen. And so what advice, one piece of advice, do you want to make sure that those survivors listening today, mm. uh, re- what do they need to hear? Well, ho- hopefully the first four podcasts were more interesting and valuable to them. Stop. Start over. <laughs> And if you ask for advice from O'Leary, it would probably be twofold. The The first would be to be okay in the pain. That doesn't mean like live there forever. But, but the idea of racing through this would be a massive mistake. You've been burned, either literally or figuratively and possibly both. And for me to say, and it's going to be okay, you got this, is the wrong advice. So number one, like, I'm sorry, this is hard. It's miserable. You're not the only one to go through it, but that does not make it any better better or easier. So if you're in pain right now, it's okay. I think I've read a quote today. It's okay to be okay. That's Mm -hmm. true. And then as you're ready to begin the journey forward, hear that. Like when you are ready, not when someone else says, hey, you've had three weeks, a month, a year. No, when you are ready, when you are ready, I would begin ending the idea of comparing my life today to my life yesterday. I think it's the wrong comparison. I I would not compare my life today to my neighbors, what they drive, what their arms look like, how their hands function, all that stuff. That's the wrong comparison. I would compare my life today instead to who I want to become tomorrow and how I can take steps today to get there. That would be the only comparison I would keep making going forward. Like, who do I want to be tomorrow? And what steps am I going to take today to get there? And I think in doing that well and authentically, it will richly free you to no longer compare yourself to how life was a year ago because you're never going back to it. Never compare yourself again to your neighbor, Fred, because you're never going to go back to that dude either. You'll never fit in if he wants you to fit into a perfect little sized box. But in determining what kind of life you want to have, you'll begin building a network that will guide you toward it. You'll lean into podcasts like the one you're tuning into today with these two girls and their graphs. They'll guide you toward it. You'll ask the right questions with the right heart, get the right answers, and then take the next right steps. So I, I would just keep asking myself, when my faith view, who's God calling you to be next? Mm-hmm. Listen for that voice and then do it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's such a beautiful message, John. Thank you again for being here today and your willingness to talk to us. Uh, being able to talk to you has been an honor, and we are so grateful. Uh, and in addition to that, I want to thank our season one sponsor, Pritzker Hagman. The Pritzker Hagman Burn Injury Legal Team helps burn survivors and their loved ones pursue compensation and justice throughout the United States. If you have any legal questions, the attorneys at Pritzker Hagman are ready to help. So you can find out more at legaljourney.guide. John, thank you so much for being here. Amber, Rachel, thank you all. And, and thank you, listeners. Thank you. And we'll make sure your website and podcast and everything else is linked in our description as well. Thank Thank you. you. 
Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Girls with Crafts. If you are enjoying this content, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.